Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. Um, if you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz, one of the pastors uh, here. And um, I want to tell you all before I get started that starting on Monday afternoon, I got clobbered with a cold, and I was in bed all week, and I woke up today better, except I can't hear out of my right ear, like at all. <laughs> so it feels like I'm talking with my head inside of a bucket right now. And so if I misspeak or lose my train of thought or proclaim some heresy, that's why, okay? Um, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount what it means to follow Jesus. And because even though, even though listening to Jesus' teaching doesn't save you, even though you're not accepted and loved by God if you obey him, obedience is evidence that you know Jesus and that you have a relationship with him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. If you're a follower of Jesus, you examine your heart and you ask yourself, is there a willingness in me to, to follow Jesus and his teaching, uh, even if our culture thinks I'm a nut job? Is there a willingness to obey God, even if I don't understand what he's telling me to do, or if I don't understand why he says not to do something? Is there a willingness to obey even if I don't feel like it? And Jesus says, if you have experienced my forgiveness, if you have experienced my love, if, if, if you have experienced my, my generosity, you will passionately pursue me and live for me because I passionately pursued you and lived for you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian here, it is my hope and prayer that you feel welcome here, that this is a place where you can explore Christianity and the, and the claims of Jesus. And this morning, you get to uh, hear what God calls us, to, as far as Christians go, how he calls us to live. And my, my hope is that this is helpful for you. Now, I don't know if you noticed but it seems like every single passage that we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount has been brutally challenging, right? Jesus addresses our anger. He addresses our lust. He addresses our marriages. He addresses sex. He addresses divorce. He addresses lying. And today, I think Jesus finishes this section with his most challenging teaching yet. He's teaching on what to do when we're personally tacked and personally insulted. This teaching includes his famous words about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies. And if we take Jesus' teaching here seriously, it will sound unreasonable. It will sound naive. It might even sound wrong to you. 
So I want you to be on guard against that. As we go through this, here's what I want all of us to do, including me. I want us to think, each of us, of a strained relationship. It could be somebody in your family. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone in this church. It could be someone you work with. It could be your spouse, a parent, a child. Maybe there's several people that come to mind. And I want you to prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in how to apply the gospel to those relationships and and to ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart and give you wisdom in those strained relationships. Now, if you're following along with your handout that's in the bulletin, you'll see that we're going to be addressing three critical questions. And the first question about this passage is, what should we do when we are wronged? Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this principle right here, was drawn, he's drawing this principle from the Old Testament teachings, specifically Leviticus 24.19 and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. And this has been called the lex talionis, which means to equal or ex- exact retribution. And here's what you need to know about this lex talionis, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. First, Jesus is not talking negatively about it. An eye for an eye was used for judicial situations in Israel's court of law, right? That was the context. The purpose of the Lex Talionis was to curb evil. Back in the Old Testament days, in Jesus' day, and even our day, if you're rich, it was possible for you to get away with your abuse of power and run over the weak and the poor. And if you were one of the weak and poor, you got exploited and you had no power to do anything about it. So the principle of equal retribution here within the court system of Israel was to prevent the injustice. This also prevented the endless cycle of escalating violence where payback increased more and more as it went back and forth. Now here's the deal. In all of God's law, the letter of God's law was always meant to point to and be attached to the spirit of God's law. Jesus tells us to love God and to love our neighbor. The law can be boiled, all the law can be boiled down to that. To love God, love our neighbor. The purpose of God's law is godly love. But in Jesus' day, what people were doing is they were taking this lex talionis, this eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth, out of the courts and into their personal grievances. And then they applied the letter of the law and completely missed the spirit of the law. And instead of a motivation of love, this became a way to exact payback and vengeance. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. Jesus here is teaching against that. What Jesus is telling us is, for those of you who follow me, in your personal relationships with your neighbors, with your coworker, with your spouse, your children, your parents, 
whoever it is, in your personal uh, relationships, if you are wronged, there should be no retribution. In verse 39, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. That triggers a question right away, right? Like, are we supposed to be doormats? Enable people? Let them run all, all over us and never resist? That's not what he's teaching here. First, the Bible teaches us not only to resist the devil, but also in Galatians 2, Paul says, I resisted Peter to his face. Peter stopped eating with Gentiles and only would eat with Jewish believers as if they were first-class Christians and second-class Christians. And Paul calls them, calls them out on it, and he resisted Peter to shut down the hypocrisy. So then what does Jesus mean when he says, do not resist the one who is evil? What Jesus is telling us is that when we are wronged, when we are, when we are offended, don't fight fire with fire. It just makes things worse. It's not about winning. It's not about your pride. It's not about your reputation. It's not about your control. It's not about your security. It's not about your honor. It's not about your comfort. Jesus says, put it aside for the sake of loving the other person and let it go. And Jesus gives us several examples of what this might look like in our lives. First example he gives is in verse 39, when he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is not saying, if a bully picks a fight with you, just let him beat the snot out of you. That's not what he's endorsing here. Now, he's, he mentions the right cheek. Now, now, now most people were right-handed, and so if you got punched in the face or a regular slap in the face, what side of your face would be hit? Your left side of your face. So when he mentions, you know, your right cheek, what he's referring to is a backhanded slap, which in that context, in that culture, was considered a, a form of an insult. So Jesus is saying, when you're insulted, when you're offended like that, don't retaliate. Don't return evil for evil. That's what the world does. That's not my kingdom. It doesn't sound very reasonable to me. It doesn't if we take it seriously. If we're honest, we struggle with that. He goes on with another example. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A tunic in Jesus' day was equivalent to a shirt. You could be sued and lose your shirt. But the cloak, according to the law, was yours to keep. You were legally protected from, from losing it because your cloak protected you from the cold and the rain, and it was used to, to collect food. And, and so when Jesus says, let him have your cloak, that was radical. He's saying it's not about being fair. So be willing to give even more than they deserve. That sounds unreasonable to me. 
Next example in verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And that day when traveling Roman soldiers came by, they could order you to stop everything and to carry their sword, to carry their shield, to carry the spear, anything else that they had, and you were required to do so immediately and for about a mile. You could be having dinner with your family. You could be headed out to work. You could be headed to the market. And the soldier says, hey, you, carry my stuff. You're obligated immediately for one mile, Jesus says. Go an additional mile. Now, he's not giving a legalistic measure here. Jesus is saying, even if you do something that you're obligated to do, your attitude should not be one of resentment or bitterness. Do it willingly and joyfully and cheerfully. That sounds unreasonable to me. The last example he gives in verse 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Is Jesus being naive? He's saying if someone needs help, help him. Serve her. We err on the side of being stingy and, and not being naive. Uh, and we count it as wisdom to be cynical. Jesus is calling us to err on the side of generosity. Don't assume the worst. This is a totally different way to live, isn't it? Completely different. What Jesus is doing here, he's given all of us, including me, opportunities to search our hearts. To search our hearts for cynicism. To search our hearts for bitterness. To search our hearts for resentment. And the way we justify it. Jesus wants us to see how quickly and how easily we get angry or cynical and that we don't even come close to approaching what Jesus is asking of us here. But actually, you know what? He's not asking us. He's commanding us. It's not a suggestion. We feel within our rights to get angry when someone disrespects us or belittles us. For me, it is a hundred times more intense if someone disrespects or belittles somebody in my family. And your blood boils. We want revenge. You hurt me, I will hurt you. You want to bring me pain, I'm going to bring you Armageddon. You destroy my reputation, I will obliterate your reputation. In, in our society, getting even is like a human right, like a basic right. It's in the Bill of Rights somewhere, right? It feels good. That's why we love Tarantino movies. It's all about revenge. You humiliate me and ruin my reputation, 
Like in Princess Bride, I want to tell him my name is Mateo Ortiz, you killed my reputation, prepared to die. What would our world be like if everyone lived like that? There would be an endless cycle of violence. Someone said if the whole world followed an eye for an eye principle within a month, everyone would be blind in both eyes. Making someone pay for what they did is easier than you might realize. And we can either do it aggressively or passive aggressively. I find that it's incredibly easy in parenting. Oh, you little brat, you're angry. We might not say that out loud, but we're thinking it. You're angry? I'll show you angry. Oh, you're going to yell? I will shout you down. You refuse to do what I say? I will grab you by the back of the neck and I will force you to do what I'm telling you to do. We don't care about their heart. We don't care about their attitude. We don't care about their willingness. We just want behavioral compliance. Maybe you're not that aggressive. Maybe your passive aggressive has the same heart. You're trying to get control. It can happen in any relationship. You did that to me. You said that to me. Silent treatment, cold shoulder, subtle use of guilt. And an eye for an eye can also be a way of keeping score. If you do this for me, then I will do that for you. If you scratch my back, then I will scratch yours. If not, forget you. All bets are off. Jesus says that when it comes to our pride, when it comes to our comfort, when it comes to our security, when it comes to our stuff, when it comes to our reputation, when it comes to our honor, when it comes to our rights, Christians don't care about that being the highest priority like the world does. Those who follow Jesus are the people who not only give up their personal rights, but they seek the rights of others ahead of their own. Is this tough for anyone else besides me? This is tough, isn't it? Well, we're just getting started. <laughs> Second main question is this. What attitude should we have towards those against us? We can all think of people who have hurt us, right? Jesus tells us that the reason we don't try to make them pay is for the advancement of God's kingdom and love in a broken world. So in verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, here's the thing. The scriptures do say to love your neighbor. Nowhere, anywhere, does the scriptures say to hate your enemy? The religious leaders added that. They deduced it. They said, this only applies to our fellow Israelites. If you're an outsider, we don't have to love you. Jesus corrects that nonsense in his parable of the Good Samaritan. And here when he says, no, 
I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, I don't give you a green light to hate anyone. Love your neighbor. Love the outsiders. Love those who are for you. Love those who are against you. And the word that Jesus uses for love here is agape, which means, well, it doesn't mean just be nice to them. It doesn't mean that. It's not passive. It is sacrificial love. A love that seeks the welfare of the other person, the protection of the other person. Having their interests in mind, even if it costs you something. Kent Hughes in his commentary shares a story about a missionary friend uh, of his who came back home for, for a break and she rented herself a place uh, to rest and recuperate and soon after she moved in, some new neighbors moved in and that's when the problems began. There was loud music day and night, fighting, yelling, screaming. They even peed in her front yard in broad daylight just to disrespect her. When she tried to talk to them about it, they mocked her, just turned the music even louder. One day, one of the kids took a can of orange spray paint and spray painted her patio, the walls, the floor, everything. She tried to pray blessings for them, but all she could do was honestly confess her hatred for her neighbors. And while she was wrestling in prayer, Colossians 3.14 came to her mind. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And she prayed, God, I can't do this. You need to help me put on this love. And, and she started thinking through what would it look like if I actually did love <laughs> my, my neighbors. And she started a real basic list. Bake cookies, offer free babysitting, invite the mom over for coffee. And as she began to do these things, she got to know them and she learned that her neighbors were living under intense, brutal pressure. As she got to know them, she began to sincerely empathize with them and she began to she was she found herself sincerely loving them and serving them and lending to them and giving to them without expecting anything back and when her neighbors finally moved instead of celebrating she wept that is a completely different attitude it is a supernatural agape love that captured her heart and enabled her to love her neighbors. Now, if that sounds like something difficult for you to do, it is nothing compared to those around the world who have faced very real violence and suffering and evil where it is absolutely unimaginable to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But what happens if we don't do that? Well, for one thing, instead of God's love and kingdom advancing, evil would advance. 
Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who witnessed and experienced unspeakable atrocities uh, of civil war in his home country. And he said, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetuated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory... Evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He is not saying that if you love your enemies like this, that will make you a child of God, but that this is what God's children do. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. Now be who you already are in Christ. Live consistently with that. Is it easier to love others who love you back? Is it easier to respect people who respect you back? Totally, right? Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's no such thing as showing favoritism. He says in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors people who cheat their own people as a tool for the oppressive Roman Empire, don't they do the same thing? Jesus is pointing out that worldly love is polluted by self-interest and favoritism. Jesus says, my followers and my kingdom is characterized by an unselfish love that shows no discrimination. Jesus says, look at my heavenly Father who sends life-giving rain on the just and the unjust, who lets sunshine on the good and the bad. No favoritism. Love your enemies. Pray and ask God to bless them. That's another tough answer, right? To another tough question. This begs the question, how is it even possible to live like this? That's our third point, last question. I will tell you something. When it comes to preaching sermons about loving our enemies or loving people who sin against us or loving people who insult us or, or take advantage of us, they're difficult sermons to preach because there's so many different situations. And I know in everybody's mind, they're thinking, well, what about this? And what about that? Isn't this an exception or that exception? I get that. I understand that. Are you telling us that we're supposed to enable them to sin against people? That's not what I'm saying. And you're going to leave here probably wrestling with this if you find yourself in a strained relationship with one or, or more people, and it's going to be difficult. And I want to invite you to work through that with a brother or sister in Christ 
And if it's an especially serious uh, situation, do the same. And also know that the doors are open. As far as the pastors are concerned, we invite you to meet with us and talk with us and pray with us. I know it's not easy. I can't address every single situation here. The first reaction when you hear stuff like this is, does Jesus really expect his followers to be like this? I mean, you read this and you think, well, that's lofty and sounds wonderful, but I can't, but really? Jesus cannot be serious. Well, Jesus doubles down in verse 48 and says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not pretty good. Not try your best. But be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this not only applies to what he just said about loving our enemies, but also everything else that he said as well, like when it comes to our anger and lust and our marriage and integrity. What does Jesus mean when he calls us to be perfect? What Jesus is saying is, this is the righteous and perfect standard of God. And it calls for a radical way of living. And if you know the central message of the scriptures, he is not calling us to achieve this in our own power. The whole central message of the scriptures is that salvation is not by works, but by grace that leads to works. And the kingdom of God does not come to us by achieving, but by receiving. And so what is it that we have received? We have received Christ himself. God the Son. Who he is, what he's done for us. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And he expounds on that. We learn that it is the gospel that also empowers us to live for King Jesus and follow him and do what he commands. So, if you're like me, you read this and you feel maybe just beat up by Jesus' standard, The only place we have to turn is to Jesus and his gospel. The only thing that we can turn to is the cross. It's at the cross that we see that God himself turned the other cheek. God himself had his tunic and his outer cloak stripped from him. God himself was forced by his oppressors to carry his own cross. God himself became a, became a beggar and was impoverished, and he did that for us. God himself prayed for his enemies and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know who he was praying for when he said, God, God forgive them? For us, for you, and for me. Until we realize that we were his enemies, that we resisted God, and that we rejected God, that the injustice that he suffered was for us, only then will it humble us in such a way that we will begin to see ourselves in the one who was wounded for us. 
Paul says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We approach our relationships like a 50-50 deal. You do 50%, then I'll do 50%. Or a 100-100 deal. I'll give all of myself to you if you give 100% to me. But what we see in the gospel, what we see in Jesus Christ, is that he gave 100% of himself even though we had nothing to offer him. Jesus gave himself completely like this for his enemies. For you and for me. And he did it freely. He did it joyfully. He did it completely and out of love. To the extent that you know this, to the extent that you believe this, you will be liberated and you will be free to love when you have suffered injustice. Only Jesus can bring that kind of healing and that kind of freedom. Let me close with this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is establishing, Jesus is establishing a new community, a city on a hill. He's establishing a new city. It is a community characterized by God-like love. So I want to end with some questions for us. How do we respond when someone wrongs us? How do we respond when someone, they might even be genuinely hurt, but they've totally misunderstood and misrepresent us to others? In light of the gospel, are we being gracious when someone speaks badly about us or when somebody outright attacks us? What's our attitude toward people who disdain us, who disdain what we believe? Do we write them off? Do we fight fire with fire? Or are we loving and pray for those who persecute us, meaning praying for God's blessings on them? It's so easy to get our hearts exposed in our day and age with social media. It really is. It's amazing how uninhibited people can be on social media and be completely oblivious to the way that they are treating other people who don't believe the way they believe from a different political party or a different religion or different denomination or different theological stance. It is amazing how, on one hand, it can be a horrible, horrible thing, uh, but it does give you an insight into what 
a little bit better insight into what's going on inside people's hearts. The self-righteousness there. And in our social media, are we using that as a platform to insult people who don't believe the way, that we, the way we believe or don't vote the way that we vote or view a particular, I don't know, event or crisis differently? Are we humble? Are we respectful? Are we pathetically trying to shame people and make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Are you gracious in your interactions with your neighbors? Are you a person of grace and patience even towards those who are making things difficult for you? The Apostle Paul encourages us when he tells us love bears all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is godly love, the kind of love that Jesus had for you and me when we were his enemies, and the kind of love that we should have for our enemies. So my prayer is that as a church family, as, as we live in light of what Jesus has done for us, in light of his love for us, that we would be a new city a radical community that loves others the way that God loved us, the way Jesus loved us. So, those people that are in mind right now, those with whom you have a strained relationship, spouse, kids, parents, co-workers, uh, neighbors, brother, sister in Christ, whoever, my encouragement to you is to pray for reconciliation it's not going to happen overnight, probably not. And my encouragement to you is before you attempt reconciliation is to meditate on how Christ loved you. Otherwise, when you attempt reconciliation, it'll just be laying down some ultimatums. I'm here in all humility to reconcile with you if you follow my ultimatum. Ask God to show you the way that he's loved you. Now, when he loved you, did he just sweep our sin under the rug and act like everything's cool and we didn't do anything wrong? No. I'm not saying that when somebody is sinning against you to pretend like they did nothing wrong. That's not what I'm saying here. God doesn't do that with us. I'm not saying do that with any others. But you still love him. And you ask God for wisdom and how to best pursue that, that relationship with a genuine humility. And if you don't have a genuine humility that comes from the gospel, just, just wait, but don't procrastinate. Relentlessly confess sin until you get to a place of humility and see God's grace for you so that you can show grace to other people. Don't procrastinate. Do it today. 
call them today. Meet up with them as soon as you can. It is putting your faith in action. Don't give up if they reject you. We rejected God for a long time before his love, before we saw the love that he had for us. Jesus and his gospel will set you free to do that. And I pray that we would find our hope and our strength in him. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I, I pray that our hearts would be soft towards your word. God, I pray that if there's any defensiveness in us and even a justification of our defensiveness, that you would enable us to set that aside. We ask that you would expose the bitterness in our heart, the resentment in our heart, and that you would heal us from that. We instinctively hold on to that bitterness and we complain quietly to ourselves or to our friends or to our family and justify it. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how much you loved us even when we did not love you. How you accepted us even when we rejected you. God, I pray that you would make us a humble people and that you would not only give us humility because of the gospel, but that you would also give us the confidence that we need to pursue reconciliation. We pray that your kingdom would advance in our hearts, in our church, in our relationships, in our neighborhood. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in us today, in this moment. God, I pray if there's anybody here that's not found reconciliation with, with you, uh, that this morning that, that you would soften their hearts and that you would draw them to yourself and that you would give them courage uh, to put their faith in you and to follow you and to live life in your kingdom the way, the way you call us to live. We pray these things in your name.